didn't Jesus say, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect? Scary stuff. How can anybody be sure to be safe? It's a dark, horrible world. Well, it's not all bad. I'm not turning into one of those grumpy old curmudgeons who's always grumbling and sees no good in anything. Well, I hope I'm not anyway. But the older you get, the longer you have been in this world, the more you see it for what it is. It's broken. It's disappointing. Horrible things happen. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This world is enemy territory. It's a dark, dark place. The older you get, the more you see it for what it is, and the more you realize heaven is going to be good. It's a dark, dark place, but Peter's just been telling us that we have a light to guide us. He called it the prophetic word. He was talking about the Bible. He explained to us that the Bible was given to us by men, by prophets who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And he said, this Bible is like a lamp shining in a dark place. And that's good. We have something that we can have confidence in to keep us right in this dark world. Something that we know without a doubt is true, something that's reliable, something that is infallible. Every word of it. But even as those prophets were prophesying, Peter's now telling us at the start of chapter 2, even as that was going on, there were false prophets. There were men who claimed to speak for God, but they didn't. And he says, in the same way, there will be false teachers among you. You have your Bible to keep you right, but there'll also be people among you who'll be teaching wrong things. And did you notice he says, among you? He's not talking about outsiders who'll be a bad influence. These false teachers will be insiders. They're people who belong. He says they'll secretly bring in destructive heresies. And that word heresies there, it sounds to our ears like wild deviant stuff that's so far off the mark you couldn't miss it. But what Peter actually means is just different ways of thinking. Ways of thinking that are off the mark, yes, but they're maybe not that obviously bad. He says they'll introduce these ideas secretly. They're not going to stand up and say, I've come up with a heresy, listen to this, or what about this for false teaching? They'll just work their ideas in so as you hardly notice it happening. But their ideas will be harmful. Peter says they're destructive. They could lead to your ruin. And he says, the people who do this, they deny the Lord 
And again, he doesn't mean that they're going to stand up and say, I don't believe in Jesus. It means that they'll deny him his proper place. They won't obey him. And he goes on, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many, did you get that? Many will follow them. Not a few. Many will go along with their teaching. Many will follow their sensuality. That means they'll be people who give in to their own desires. That's what the word sensuality is about. And many people will go along with them in it. And as a result, they'll bring dishonor on the church and on the Christian faith. People will look on from outside and they say, look at the way those Christians are getting on. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They lie to you and they'll take advantage of you with their false teaching. They say that in many ways Jude's letter is a parallel to Second Peter. Jude adds to the picture of the same people. He says they're ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying too that they're ungodly. God doesn't have a place in their lives. They follow their own desires, that word sensual again coming in. They do their own thing. They don't care what God says, not really. And they make God's grace an excuse for their sin. He says they turn God's grace into lewdness. That's how he puts it, lewdness. It means unrestrained desires, self-indulgence, uncontrolled sin, and even outrageous, shameless, gross stuff. That's what Jude says they're like. And he says they excuse it with, live as you like. God is gracious. God will forgive you anyway. And he says too, as Peter says, they will deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's what Peter says is going to happen. Maybe your first reaction is indignation. How can they get away with that? How does God allow that to happen? Well, Peter says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, they won't get away with it forever. They've got it coming to them. But maybe after you get over your indignation, your next thought will be, oh, not in our church. But Peter's telling his readers, there will be false teachers among you. And Jude told his readers, they're already among you. Certain men have crept in unnoticed, he says. You haven't noticed it, but certain men have crept into your fellowship. He says they are spots on your love feasts. Now, a love feast, as far as we can tell, was a regular practice in the church in the early days. What happened was that they met together and they shared a meal together. And they gathered around the table, and as they gathered around the table, they chatted about the Lord and what he was doing in their lives. And part of that meal, they ate bread and they drank wine in remembrance of him, just as he told them to do, and just like we do when we gather around the table. These people who have crept in unnoticed are spots in your love feast, Jude says. They sit at the table with you. They're not outsiders. You think they belong, but they're dangerous. They're hidden reefs at your love feast. That's how it's translated in one of the translations. Are you getting that picture? 
like a reef that's just under the surface of the water. You don't know it's there till your boat hits it and you're hold below the waterline. Don't think it couldn't happen in our church. Didn't Jesus say, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect? Scary stuff, isn't it? How can anybody be sure to be safe? I know we've got a light. The Bible is there to keep us right. But maybe some of us aren't as skilled in it as we ought to be. So what if some of us are tricked? What if you are taken in? What if you're led astray by the destructive ideas and sensual ways of a false teacher? Do you ever worry about that? Well, don't. Don't worry about it. Peter is warning you about these people, so the threat is real. But he also wants you to know, and I think this is why he has written this little bit in his letter, he wants you to know that God has it in hand. God can handle these scoundrels. That's why he gives you these four examples from the past, examples of God acting in judgment. The first example he gives might not be immediately obvious to you where it comes from, but Peter's readers would have known this right away. The first example is a reference to the days before the time of Noah. Genesis 6 verse 1 when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them and the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. It's a story of angels leaving their proper realm and God cast them into hell where they are even yet awaiting judgment. Peter says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. The point you're meant to note is this. Even angels couldn't and didn't get away with it when they sinned. Peter's second example of God acting in judgment takes us to the days of Noah. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. God was able to go so far as to wipe out virtually the whole world because of sin. And he did. But he preserved Noah and his family. The third example is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And the point of all three examples is God can handle the ungodly. No matter how powerful they are, no matter how many there are of them, no matter how evil they are, God can handle the ungodly and he will. But God can do more than that. The example from the days of Noah hints at it, but this fourth example shows it more clearly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, 
greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, you might think of Noah as a well-nigh perfect righteous man. He wasn't, of course. But you might think of him that way. A lot of people do, but not Lot. I mean, if you read the Genesis account of Lot's life, he comes across as a right scoundrel himself. But clearly he was righteous in God's eyes because God's word says here that he was. Now, Lot wasn't righteous in his own right. Nobody ever is. Nobody ever was except Jesus, not even Noah. Lot wasn't righteous in his own right. Lot was a saved man. God made him righteous. And here's the point of this example. Even out of the dreadful wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, God was able to keep his man, Lot, safe. And at the same time, bring the judgment on those cities that they deserved. God preserving his people, even as he brings judgment. False teachers will come among you, Peter says. But there's no need to worry. If God did what he did in the days before the flood and in the times of Noah and Lot, then, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. God can keep the unrighteous under judgment until the day of judgment. They've got it coming to them. And God can rescue the godly. You'll be okay. As Peter put it in his first letter, he said, You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you kept in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God for that salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last day. Kept by the power of God. The word kept, it's, it's the word that was used for a, a garrison of soldiers. You're surrounded, you're protected, you're garrisoned by the power that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and put him in a position of authority over everything, the power that made the whole universe out of nothing, that power surrounds you and protects you and keeps you safe and is bringing you to heaven, kept by the power of God. Well, that raises the old chestnut, the saved and lost one. If you're saying God's power is keeping me and I can't be lost, does that mean I don't have to be bothered about these false teachers at all? Does it mean I can live any old careless way I like and sure God will keep me and bring me to heaven anyway? No. Did you notice what Peter said back in chapter 1? Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm or to make sure your calling and election for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So here's Peter, and he has been giving us some massive reassurance. He said, look, you have the same kind of faith that I and the other apostles have. He says, God has given you absolutely everything you need to live a godly life. And he's reminded us that God has given us all those promises that he's going to fulfill for us. And God never fails to keep a promise. You have what it takes. You'll be okay. And then having given us that massive reassurance, he goes on and he says, Therefore, not in spite of being reassured about all of that, but therefore, because you have been reassured of all of that, Therefore, be diligent. Work hard to make your calling and election sure. It is sure. Now get to work and work hard and consistently to make it sure. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. God is keeping you. You won't be lost and you won't be led astray. Now get to work and work hard to make sure. And now you're going to tell me that doesn't make sense. Well, as I've said before, and I'll probably say again, we're talking about God's ways here. You can't expect it all to make sense to you. There are always going to be things about God and God's ways that are beyond our tiny minds to understand. I mean, he's God. And who are we in comparison? There will always be things about God that are beyond us. Some things you just have to take God's word on, and I think this is one of them. God is keeping you. God will keep you. Be reassured. But you have to be diligent to make sure of your calling and election. So work hard. Here's the closest I can come to an explanation of this for you. And it comes from Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You've got to work out your salvation. You've got to do it with fear and trembling, fear that you might be led astray, fear that you might be lost, fear that you might offend God. Work out your salvation. You've got to be diligent at doing that. Why? Paul says in Philippians, why should you work hard at it? Because God is at work in you, making you want to. Making you want to do it and making you actually do his will. That's what that verse means. You've got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you, making you want to. You have to work hard, Christian. You have to work hard at being a Christian, and you will. 
because God has put it into your heart to do that as he puts it into the heart of every Christian. It's one of those ways that he keeps you safe when there are false teachers about. So Peter was writing to Christians who, like us, were living in a dark and dangerous world. Bad times for God's people, he says, and worse times are coming. Peter was writing his letter to make them ready for that, to make them strong. So he begins by building their confidence. You have faith every bit as good as mine. You have everything else you need. You have the promises of God to rely on. You have God's word to guide you like a light shining in a dark place. And no matter what tricky tricksters come your way, don't worry, God can handle them. And at the same time, he can keep you safe. Be assured you're going to be okay. But don't sit back. Get to work. Make use of that faith you've got. Grow it and develop it. Make it strong by putting it to use. You have everything else it takes too. So strive diligently and work hard and consistently without let up to live a godly life. And you have a light to guide you. You have the Bible. So work hard at understanding it and using it skillfully. Be reassured. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Be confident. Remember, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Be reassured, but get to work and work hard on all of those things that we've been learning about over these past few weeks. And you know you want to. It's in your heart. You're born again and God has put it in there. Just sometimes life gets busy and you get distracted and you forget to work at these things. Don't let that happen. Don't be lazy. It's important that you do the work, but at the same time, be confident. God will keep you safe. You don't need to worry about the false teachers. He'll deal with them. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for these great words of reassurance. Help us, Father, in the light of them to have confidence in you to not be anxious about the future. But help us at the same time not to be complacent, but to be diligent, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For we pray in Jesus' name.